Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for that truth that you save sinners and you place them on a path, path of serving you and following you and a path of joy, a path of having purpose in life and a path of hope for heaven eternal. Lord, we thank you that uh, you do uh, show grace and mercy toward us. We do ask for your help tonight as we study this wonderful passage in Psalm 119 that we might be able to understand the truth that's there and apply it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, like many others, I find a great benefit in praying the prayers that are actually found in Scripture, in the Bible. There are quite a number of prayers there by different authors. I'm helped by taking the words of a biblical prayer and making them my own and then applying them to some specific situation or need in my life. Just a clarification though, however, I am not referring to using biblical prayers as some sort of magical incantation, as if you you pray the Bible and, and it does magic things. That's just not true. Praying a biblical prayer is not a guarantee of getting all you want. Reminds me of what happened with the prayer of Jabez several years ago. Some of you remember that. The prayer of Jabez, it's a short little prayer found in the Old Testament. It became very popular several years back. Someone wrote a a book on it and made quite a bit of money. People began praying that little prayer in order, they thought, to become more prosperous financially and so on. So I'm not talking about that. But biblical prayers can be useful in teaching us how to pray. The many prayers penned by the Apostle Paul uh, are especially helpful in that sense. There are a number of those. But there are many other prayers in Scripture you can personalize. There are prayers by Daniel and uh, Jehoshaphat. And certainly many of the Psalms are prayers Well, tonight we are looking at a section of the Psalms that's like that. It's Psalm 119, the fifth stanza of that Psalm. It's verses 33 through 40. That's the fifth stanza, verses 33 through 40 of Psalm 119. This section is a good pattern for our prayers. Now, as we have learned so far in our study of this long Psalm, the longest Psalm and the longest chapter of the Bible, As we've learned already, but I'll remind you anyway, it's an acrostic psalm. Uh, That just means that each of the stanzas, and the stanzas are eight verses long, each of the eight-verse stanzas highlights the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That just means that each of the eight verses in that stanza, uh, in the Hebrew, not in the English, but in the Hebrew, each of the stanzas, each of the verses in the stanza begins with the same Hebrew letter, whichever letter is being highlighted in that stanza. So far, we have studied four stanzas, and therefore we have uh, studied the stanzas that highlight the first four letters of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, and Daleth. So this is the fifth stanza. It's the He stanza. We would spell it in English H-E, He. That's the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in Hebrew, each of the eight verses begin with that letter. 
You just don't see that in English. This stanza is essentially about this one particular theme, and that is total dependence on God. In fact, this hey stanza is almost entirely devoted to prayer. There are nine prayers altogether in these eight verses, prayers that are petitioning God for help in various ways. And it's interesting to note what the use of the letter hey accomplishes in this stanza. It's attached at the beginning of the main verb. That's how each of the sentences begin in Hebrew. This hey is attached. It's a letter attached to the main verb. And when that's done in Hebrew, it makes the verb what we would say is causative. Causative. I'll try to explain that a little better here in a moment. Look down in the passage, 33 through 40, and you, you can see some of the prayers that are coming up. Teach me, O Lord. Give me understanding. Make me walk. Incline my heart. And so on. Those are prayers. Well, due to the hay that's attached in English, we, we would more literally translate it this way in a causative sense. He's really saying to God, cause me to learn Cause me to have understanding, cause me to walk, cause my eyes to turn away, cause my heart to be inclined a certain way, and so on. There's one translation that actually does that. It's the new Legacy Study Bible. I got a copy of it recently. I'm I'm really enjoying it, the Legacy Study Bible. It's essentially the New American Standard with some, what I would call is some helpful tweaks, corrections. The Legacy Study Bible translates most of this section that way with the word cause. The other well-known English versions like the ESV and the King James, the New American Standard and so forth, um, do uh, render the verbs more just as simple requests. In any case, as I pointed out, there are nine of these requests that we could even call passionate pleas to God. And they spotlight the author, this psalmist. We don't know exactly who wrote this psalm. Many of us believe Daniel wrote it. But whoever the author was, they, these requests spotlight the disciples' awareness of his total dependence on God for help. So let's look at his request together tonight. But for the purpose of making them our prayers as well. This can can inform us how to pray. Now, I've chosen to outline the nine requests under seven categories, actually. So a couple of them are blended together. Seven categories that summarize what the psalmist knew he was dependent on God for in order for him to live rightly before the Lord, to live a life that pleases God. And we are dependent on, these, on God for these very same things in our lives. And I trust you'll see that tonight. So here's number one, what we are totally dependent on God for. Number one, for steadfast endurance. We're dependent on God for that, to help us have steadfast endurance. Verse 33 begins this way, "'Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes.'" Now, I'll tell you what he's doing there with that as he starts this stanza. He's essentially asking God to reveal his will to him. 
But he's not asking to know God's will on some specific item that he's facing. That's what most people think of when, they, uh, when you talk about finding God's will. That's what most people think of when they say that they want to know God's will. They want to know something specific. You know, what is God's will for me? What house should I buy, this one or that one? What job should I take? Or whom should I marry? Or what's God's will in this decision that I, that I have to make? In Bible study, we sometimes call that aspect of God's will His, his sovereign will, or uh, I prefer His decretive will, what He has decreed in His own eternal mind that will unfold in time. People want to know that. They want to know what's happening next. They want to know God's sovereign will on issues. And so they get into all kind of mystical things to find God's will. They, they look for signs from God. Or they interpret some event or some feeling, some emotion as, well, that's God speaking to me, telling me to buy the, the yellow house, not the blue house, not the white house. Well, I'm here to tell you we cannot know God's decretive will ahead of time. There is no sign for that. We find that aspect of God's will one way only, and that's as it unfolds in His providence, moment by moment. Instead, what we're really encouraged to do in Scripture is to find another aspect of God's will, what we call his, his, perhaps His moral will or His preceptive will, because it's His precepts in Scripture, His commands. It's His will that's revealed to us through His commands. We're to learn those commands, and then we're to seek to live those out, because those commands are God's will for us. And if we're doing that, then on all the other issues of life, we just simply seek to make wise decisions. Now, there's a lot more I could say about that, making decisions biblically and how that fits with God's will and so forth. That's not the purpose tonight. For now, I'm just emphasizing the will of God that we really do need to focus on, that you and I need to seek to find and to live it out, and that is God's will on how to live a faithful life that pleases Him. Now back to our verse. Notice that in our verse, He calls this aspect of God's will, He calls it a way. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. He says He doesn't just want to intellectually know God's statutes, another word for His law, His commands, His word, it is certainly necessary that we do know God's word, but that's not what he's saying. He wanted to be taught the way of God's word. The way means how to live. The way points to lifestyle. Even more specifically, it pictures life then as a journey, faithfully serving the Lord, following the Lord on a as a journey in a world that the Bible says that his people, this world, we're not even citizens of this world. We belong to another world. We live here now, but we're destined for another world. We are just passing through. We're sojourners passing through. We're not to think this is all there is. So as one who is passing through an, an alien scene, an alien world, the psalmist here, the author, wanted direction. He wanted guidance so that he stayed on God's way. Just so you'll know, David prayed the same thing. He wrote Psalm 86, verse 11. David said this in Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord. 
I will walk in your truth. It's a great prayer to pray. God loves to teach people the way of his word. In Psalm 25, verse 9, it says he teaches the humble his way. The humble meaning the the ones who humble themselves before God and say, you're God and I'm not. I want to please you. I want to live for you. Teach me your way. He teaches the humble his way. Now, in the rest of verse 33, the psalmist confirms his commitment to follow then that teaching, that guidance, that direction. He says in verse 33, and I will observe it to the end. His earnest desire was to make God's word, God's laws, the governing principle of his conduct all the way, and get this, all the way to the end of his life. That's why I'm calling this to prayer for steadfast endurance. We as well need to get on the Lord's way. We need to heed the Lord's way and endure in following it carefully. What his word tells us is his way. We need to endure in following that to the end. Even though, and we've learned this, even though God's way sometimes includes potholes and speed bumps. In other words, surprises, difficult times, trials, Challenges, disappointing times. But Scripture makes it clear His way is still the best way. So our determined commitment must be that, to follow that way faithfully, enduring no matter how difficult the way is. And for that, we definitely need the Lord's help. We need His help, first of all, to be our teacher. But you... You attach that little hay to the verb, like I said earlier, and you get the real sense of it. I mean, we're so weak. We are so dependent on God. We need him to cause us to learn the right way all the way to the end. I need him for that. I'm too weak on my own. The psalmist knew he was totally dependent on the Lord for steadfast endurance. Number two. Totally dependent on the Lord, number two, for wise discernment. For wise discernment. He says in verse 34, give me, here's another prayer, give me understanding. That term, understanding, refers to the ability to perceive things or to discern. Again, attach the hey letter on the verb, more literally then is cause me to be discerning. Cause me to discern. So this kind of understanding is not the same thing as just simple intellectual knowledge. Understanding is better than knowledge. It's deeper than knowledge. A person can fill his head with knowledge and have no real understanding of what he's doing. So when it comes to God's Word, we do gain spiritual knowledge by reading it. But it's understanding what it says. Understanding what Scripture teaches that helps us then grow in discernment to grow in wisdom and therefore proper application of what we're learning. And so it's wise discernment that we need as we daily follow the Lord on His way. Why do we need that wise discernment? Because of what we're bombarded with every day through media. We're bombarded by the world with its opinions, its changing 
ever-changing perspectives. We're bombarded with that every day. So we need wise discernment as to what fits with the way, what fits with biblical truth, and what does not. And once again, this discernment we need from the Lord is the purpose is for the purpose, ultimately, then of being more obedient. Verse 34 continues. Why? So that I may observe your laws. Back to that again. So the discernment, the wise discernment this writer seeks is something practical. He wants his growth in perceiving things wisely to result in living more wisely, living more rightly according to God's law. And then the verse adds this just an additional note about compliance with God's word. He says in verse 34, it ends, and that I may observe your law, and he says, and keep it with all my heart. All my heart means without reservation. You see, the author didn't want this growth in wise discernment to result in just external conformity to standards. He, he wanted it to be genuine obedience that flows out of his heart. Now, we know when the Scripture uses heart, it's not talking about the pump in your body, pumps blood. It's the inner man. It's the comprehensive turn about term that summarizes all of our inner man faculties, the faculties of, of rationality and thinking and affections and desires, our conscience, our will. That's the heart. That's what he wanted, genuine heart obedience. And this genuine heart obedience was something he could not accomplish on his own. He couldn't muster it up. He needed the Lord to cause it to happen, to cause the kind of wise discernment that impacted his heart. And we as well need that. We need wise discernment. And then we need the ability to act with sincerity on that discernment which is what is made even more clear in verse 35, which brings us to number three. We're totally dependent on this as well. Number three, for consistent integrity. Consistent integrity. Verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments. Or again, you could translate it, cause me. Cause me to walk. And here the author changes from using the term way. Now he calls it a path. In one sense, it's sort of capturing the same idea. It's still a course or a manner of life. But now, with the word path, there's even more stress on, on the idea of consistent conduct. And the term walk adds to that. It's a walk, a consistent walk of obedience, which means consistent integrity on the path. So the path of God's commandments is the consistent conduct that's visible to others, this conduct that's characterized by obedience to Scripture, to reveal truth in the Word of God. In a word, it's living then consistently with integrity. But here's an important biblical uh, additional thought here in the language. I love this. The Hebrew term translated path is from a root verb that means to tread Therefore, path means the trodden way. It's the way that's already been tread by others. You can see it. So this path, it's not a new direction that he's asking for. It's the same path that many had trod before him. It's the same path that many have trod before us. 
Again, the Lord's path is not a new or novel way. Now, many people in our world, and sadly churches and pastors, are coming up with all kinds of new and novel thoughts and novel ways. But the path of His commandments, there's nothing novel about it. It's old. It's established. It's the reliable way in which the people of God have walked from the very beginning of God's dealings with people. Listen to this uh, interesting thought in Jeremiah 6, verse 16. I like the way it's worded there. Thus says the Lord, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. You want rest for your souls? Find the old path, the one well-trodden by God's people throughout the centuries. James Montgomery Boyce wrote this. In terms of the Christian life, we are not innovators. We are imitators. We want to be like those who have gone before us and walk as they walked. We want to be like Abraham and Moses and David and the Apostle Paul and the Reformers of the Reformation and the Puritan, Puritans and the giants of our own time. It's interesting that James Boyce wrote that. He's with the Lord now. He's considered now one of the giants of our time. It's well said. Get on that path. That's what's important to us here at our church. We're not looking for something novel and new. We want to understand God's word to know what's the well-trodden path. So this author, this psalmist had the right perspective. He, he wanted to get on that path and consistently and reliably and unswervingly trod that same path of integrity that many others had trod. And he knew he could not do it on his own. He needed God's help. He, he, he needed God's help in the discernment side of it, discerning what is right, but then acting on that discernment and living consistently in light of it. And we are the same. Charles Bridges wrote, we are equally ignorant of the path of God's commandments and impotent to go on it. We need, therefore, double assistance. Our minds must be enlightened with the understanding, the discernment, in other words, and our hearts must be constrained so that we're choosing to walk consistently on that path. Now look how the verse ends. It's an interesting paradoxical statement, actually. After saying all of that, make me walk in the path of your commandments. Make me do this, Lord. Cause me, because I delight in it. Now, to delight here doesn't mean some fuzzy feeling you have. It doesn't mean some pleasurable emotion. It's it's more of a it means literally to take pleasure in. It's a favorable disposition of your heart. Another way to say it, it, it's a deep desire to please the Lord. That's what it is. But get the paradox. On one hand, he's just prayed for God to cause him, make me walk that path, God. While on the other hand, he's saying, and I delight in walking on that path. You, you wouldn't think we'd need, to, we'd need God to cause us to do something that we love doing. But that is what he's praying. The reality is we do need that. And the reason is we still battle something called the flesh, 
our unredeemed humanness, even though we've come to Christ, we've been forgiven of our sin, we've been given new life in Him, we love His Word, we love Him, we have this unredeemed humanness that we carry with us called the flesh until we, we die. There's a tension then between our new identity in Christ and our new resources in Christ and, and this flesh that we have to carry around in battle. I think Romans 7 captures the tension the best, verses 22 and 23. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. The tension. We know this tension. And as a result of the flesh, we, we do tend to swing back and forth like a pendulum. And so we have this, this delight in holiness and obedience and, a, and we have a desire for the things of the Lord and that desire can wane. Our hearts easily turn away. We, we vacillate. We our hearts shift its loyalty. Our desires shift. Our delights shift in moments of time. So that means our integrity gets lost in a moment in time. And the psalmist understood this reality, so essentially is saying this, Lord, I need a discipline that's higher than anything I possess. I need you to make me consistently go in the path of your commandments, even though it's, it is a path I love. We're dependent on the Lord for that, for consistent integrity. Number four, this verse takes us, all of this, a step further. Number four, we're dependent on him for this. Number four, for right priorities. Right priorities. So here's something else. All of this should be a regular part of our praying. But here's something else that should be a regular part of our praying. And it has to do with living for what's most important. Rather than living to serve self or chasing after things that don't matter. We'll see all that in a moment. So here's how he says it, verse 36. Incline my heart. Here's his prayer. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Now, to incline here means to bend or turn. It's got that hay on it, so the prayer is for God to cause his heart to turn toward his word as opposed to worldly thinking. Again, as we just noted, our hearts can stray and everything along with that, not only our delights but our thinking, our perspectives, our interests, the things that allure us. Now, God's always warned his people about that potential. Listen to 1 Kings 11, speaking to the nation of Israel, his chosen nation there. 1 Kings 11, I'll read kind of verse 2, verse 4, verse 9, scattered around here, 1 Kings 11. God tells them, don't, you shall not associate with the pagan nations. That's the first thing he tells them. For they will surely turn your heart away after other gods. Verse 4 uses Solomon as an, as an example. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God. Verse 9, now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord. 
It was inclining toward other things. By the way, there are other words in the New Testament besides inclined that capture the same idea. There's other Hebrew verbs to portray the sinful heart uh, orientation. You can say inclined, but just listen to some of these. Ezekiel 20, verse 16, their heart continually went after idols. Isaiah 29, 13, they honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts from me. Jeremiah 5, 23, they've turned aside and departed. 2 Chronicles 12, 14, he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. So all that's capturing the same thing about the the bent of the heart, the incline of the heart. So this is a real danger. It's one we still face today. Our hearts can stray towards sin and self. But our hearts can be swayed the right way as well toward God's word. 1 Kings 8, verse 57. May the Lord God be with us, 58, that he may incline our hearts to himself, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments. Just as a side note, this is all a prayer dependent on God. Don't think that we don't have responsibilities in all these things. Even this one, we have a responsibility in this as well. We're even told in Scripture, Joshua 24, 23, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline, you incline your hearts to the Lord. So yes, we have a, we have a responsibility to engage our will in this, to incline our hearts to the Lord. Sometimes the, the Scripture uses the idea of inclining your ear to the Lord. Proverbs 22, verse 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. But it's all making the same point. We need to hear scriptures like that because the heart can be bent toward wrong things. It can stray. We can allow it to be bent toward the wrong things. More specifically, we can live lives focused on self and serving self, and the psalmist was especially concerned about one sin in particular in that category of serving self. It's in verse 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. What is that? You could translate that selfish gain. You can translate this Hebrew word greed. The author knew his natural inclination of his flesh was to be greedy, to want more for self. There's another word for that in our language, covetousness. Focusing on material gain. So he implores the Lord here to take the initiative in directing his heart away from that tendency to be greedy and selfish and even dishonest in order to satisfy self. It's a dangerous sin, this thing called greed, coveting things. We find warnings of it in the New Testament as well, Ephesians 5 verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. I mean, listen to that list, immorality, that's that's sin, impurity, sin, greed in the same list. Colossians 3, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, he says. So back to our psalm, just like the psalmist, we need the Lord to take the initiative in prioritizing our hearts toward what is right. Again, this doesn't ignore our responsibility in guarding our hearts, inclining our hearts toward the Lord. I already said that. 
but we're weak. And this psalmist was admitting it. So he's asking God, cause my heart to be turned toward your word rather than allowing me to just go my way of what's natural and selfish. Let me get back and give you the big picture there. He's really saying pursuing God's law is a higher priority than satisfying self. Pursuing God's law in obedience is a higher priority than satisfying self, but he knows his heart and he's aware he could very well decline into covetousness. And that's a disaster. It's a problem in life, covetousness. The problem, the, the Apostle Paul admitted it was a problem. Romans 7, he said that Sin was producing in him coveting of every kind. Listen, we need to consistently pray for God to cause our hearts to be prioritized, not toward self, satisfying self, but toward what is right. But there's a related thought here in this request in verse 37. Turn away my eyes. This kind of goes with it. That's why I'm lumping them together. Verse 37 now. A companion thought, keeping our, our hearts focused on, on the Lord and what is right instead of something selfish and selfish gain. But now we find in verse 37, our hearts can stray into wrong priorities based upon tr- just trivial things, things that don't matter, maybe not in and of themselves sinful. Verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at vanity. Now, the eyes are used in Scripture to represent this important sensual bridge. It's the vehicle from the external to the internal. That's why Christ said this in Matthew 5 about adultery. He broadened, I mean, he corrected everybody's understanding of adultery. It's more than just the act. It begins in the heart. Matthew 5, 27, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, 28 says, but I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman has eyes for a woman with lust for her, has already committed adultery in his heart. That's why Matthew 6 later on says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So here in our verse, the author is speaking of something that he wants, the, his eyes, the, the very thing that is the bridge into his soul, the things that he sees, he wants his eyes to be turned from something. And that's something he says is vanity. And that just means worthless things. So in verse 35... Uh, 36, he, he's, he says, incline my heart so that it's, it's toward your law, your word, and not toward sin and selfish gain, covetousness, greed. Now he says, listen, I need help in you turning my heart, the eyes of my heart even, away from worthless things. Many things of this world are just trivial They're just hollow. They're worthless. And yet they can still be very alluring. We easily get attracted to these things. We we find pleasure in them, in these unsubstantial things. Or let me just put it in the broadest terms. We can easily devote ourselves to pursuing only temporal things, things only of this world. 
So the point is that if we're going to grow spiritually and we're going to live out our commitment to the Lord in practical ways, we must fix our eyes on the things of God because the things of God are weighty things, lasting things, rather than the things of the world which are passing away. In my reading on this, I was reminded of a scene in Pilgrim's Progress. I think Resolved is studying Pilgrim's Progress. Is that right? I think. Yeah. There's this scene in which verse 37 of Psalm 119 is quoted in Pilgrim's Progress. It's the scene in the narrative. Hope I'm not... Spoiler alert, I don't know where you are in your study, but it's the scene in the narrative when Christian and Faithful, these two characters, Christian and a guy named Faithful, they come to a place called Vanity Fair. They're on their way to the celestial city, you know. But in Vanity Fair, they, they pass through that and all the merchandise of the world is there for sale. But the point is, those who care about the celestial city, those who are on their way to heaven, they just don't fit with people who all they care about are things in Vanity Fair. So when Christian and faithful are asked to stop and buy, don't, don't keep going, Christian faithful. Stop and look at all this stuff. Put your eyes on all this. You need all this. Here's what they did. They put their hands to their ears and they ran away crying Verse 37, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. And they got their eyes back on heaven, the celestial city. It's a great illustration of this, that 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 is the Christian's only wise response to the allurements of the world, to what the world prizes, or to broaden it again, to what the world prioritizes. So on one hand, a great deal of temptation comes to us through our eyes. I mean, that's never more true than today. I mean, tempting literature is everywhere and social media and things, and we have to decline to watch because those things can have an attraction for us, our flesh. We, we, we get allured by something suggestive or sensual, Almost able not to look. But it's, it's a law of spiritual victory here. And that is learning not to look. Learning to look the other way. We have to pray this prayer. Cause my eyes to look away. But not just from sin. We need help in discerning the things that even aren't necessarily sinful, but they're just trivial. And ultimately worthless. They're on such a low priority. We need help looking away from them as well sometimes. And help looking then toward the things that have worth. Right priorities. And ultimately, what is it that has worth? Ultimately, it's the Lord himself. We're to fix our eyes upon him. By the way, you find both sides of this actually in that famous verse in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. I love these verses. The writer of Hebrews tells us there to lay aside every encumbrance. He's talking about running a race. He pictures the the Christian life as if we're running a race, but we can get tangled up in things. So he says, you're going to run the race well, lay aside every encumbrance 
And that is a word that just means things that are not necessarily sinful, but they can still weigh us down. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin, so there's the other side of it, which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And to fix our eyes on Jesus is not something mystical, I'm just trying to see his face or something. To fix our eyes on Jesus means prioritizing in your life all the things related to him. His word, prayer, the church, ministry, the gospel, fixing our eyes on him. But again, here's what the psalmist would say, I know all that, I wrote this, but we're weak. I know how weak I am. We are weak. We need help from the Lord to turn our eyes from beholding the vanities that the world and Satan puts before us. We need help from the Lord Lord, to turn our eyes to behold things of value that are weighty, noble, worthy things. So we should pray this. Lord, cause my heart to be inclined toward your word and, and not something selfish that I covet after, and that sin. And also, I need you to turn my eyes away from looking at just worthless things. But he didn't just say all that in a negative way. He ends verse 37 on the positive side here. Positive thing he prayed for, and it's crucial as well. It keeps all this from just being mere external conformity or just legalism. Look what he says in verse 37. And revive me in your ways. So this is not legalism here and just dutiful drudgery. Again, put the hay on the front of it in your mind. Cause me, he says, to live, to be revived and live in your way. So this is the put-on side of biblical change. The put-off side is to look away from sinful things, look away from worthless things. The put-on side is to live passionately and enthusiastically in the ways of the Lord. As the psalmist puts it here, the Lord can stir that up, see? The Lord can stir up true spiritual passions so that we love spiritual things more than sinful and worthless things because spiritual things is the right priority. We need this. We need this spiritual vitality to be stirred up. If we don't, we'll start being allured or tempted by wrong priorities again. Spiritual vitality is the answer to that. Or as Spurgeon put it, vitality is the cure for vanity. So he depended on the Lord for right priorities to live by them. Number five, he depended on the Lord for reverent worship. I mean, to even worship God rightly, to live our lives as an act of worship, we need the Lord's help in that. Here's how he says it, verse 38. Establish your word to your servant, by the way, the word servant there, even though it's Hebrew we're studying here and not the Greek New Testament, it can be translated slave. Establish your word to your slave. We are slaves of the Lord. That's a good thing. Now, you may re- recall that when we first introduced the study of Psalm 119, when Kevin introduced that, he said that in this psalm, you find several different synonyms for the Bible, the word. You find the word word. You find another word for word. You find statutes, testimonies, judgments, precepts. Well, here, 
is one of the words for word, but it's not the word for word we've already seen, like back in verse 25 and verse 28. It's a different Hebrew word, translated word. And this different one can also be translated promise. I think the ESV chose to do it that way, which is good. Establish your promise to your servant. So the psalmist is praying that the Lord would cause that promise to be established or confirmed in his life. He's aware of the fact that the world brings many temptations, many dangers, so he's aware that he needs God's help here. And the only reason our psalmist could hope in God's help is that God had promised to help his people. He's promised to be faithful to his servants, to his slaves. So another way to translate this is fulfill your promise to your servant. What promise? Well, the psalmist here is not singling out any one given promise in the word of God. He's thinking of the entire word of God as he's doing in Psalm 119, all the way through Psalm 119, the entire word. All God's word is a word of promise in a sense. It promises joy and eternal life to those who who love the Lord and go the Lord's way. It's the promise of misery and death and judgment for those who reject the truth. As we sang Psalm 1 earlier, and as Kyle mentioned, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's nothing in between. There's those who are following the Lord's way and those who aren't. So regardless of what God has declared, the psalmist knew that the Lord would be faithful to fulfill it. But he doesn't pray this only because he's got something in mind. I want the Lord to be faithful to me personally. I want him to fulfill all my desires. I want him to be faithful to take care of my family and so on and so forth and give me the money I need. I want him to be faithful to me and fulfill his promises so my life would be better. He's got something else on his mind, something more profound on his mind. He prayed that the Lord's faithful fulfilling of his promise would result in a lifestyle of reverential worship of the Lord. Look what he says in verse 38. Establish your promise to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. That was the end result he wanted. And reverence here for the Lord is the same thing as fear of the Lord. We are exhorted in Scripture to fear the Lord. Leviticus 25, 17, you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10, 12, what does the Lord God require from you but to fear the Lord your God? 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And Psalms teaches this and Proverbs teaches this, that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of real knowledge. But understand what kind of fear this is. It's not a slavish fear. It's not the fear that's associated with trembling and terror at the thought of God. If someone is disobeying the the truth and is not following God's way and living their own way, they need to be think of God as a terror. It's a terrible thing, Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of an angry God. But this is about God's people. This is a reverential awe of the Lord. And it is this reverential awe or fear of the Lord that is necessary then to truly worship Him. 
Worship is not just some sort of emotive feeling and fuzzy feeling we get. True worship is giving God the honor and reverential fear that he deserves. So this psalmist knows that he needs to live a lifestyle fearing the Lord, worshiping the Lord in every aspect of his daily life, not just in the congregation, but as a lifestyle. He wanted to be a true worshiper, one who gave God the glory he deserves, but he knew on his own he just couldn't. He needed divine help to truly do that, and we are the same. We must reverence the Lord. We must so reverence him and hold him in reverential awe, so worship him as a lifestyle that we seek to live every word, every, live by every word out of his mouth in all the areas of our life. I pray that. This is a good prayer. God, I am dependent on you to be a reverential worshiper of you. Number six, depend on the Lord for this. Number six, for determined confidence. Determined confidence. Verse 39, turn away my reproach, which I dread. Cause it to go away, Lord, the reproach that I dread. Reproach here means scorn. It means contempt. It means even disgrace. And it can be thought of two ways, and there's, it's hard to know which one for sure he had in his mind. On one hand, it could be the disgrace that's there in God's eyes, because of our shameful sin and disobedience. On the other hand, it could be the scorn and reproach from others, worldly people, the sinners, because of our faithful adherence to God's law. In other words, the people of the world mocked and ridiculed this man because of his testimony. We don't know. But I'll tell you, in either case, here was his point. Whatever side of reproach this was for him. The temptation for him was to feel that he was a personal failure. Either because of shame before God or because of other people's ridicule of him and mocking him and that sense of failure could cause him to start holding back. Sort of drop out of the race. Seeing himself as unworthy or just tired from the battle. In any case, it's no wonder that he adds here, and I dread this reproach. He dreads it because he knew what the effect was on his confidence to live for the Lord. So as with everything else he prayed about, he knows he can't fight this tendency to drop out. He can't fight this dread of reproach on his own. He needed the Lord to cause the sense of disgrace to go away so that he could once again have this determination and this confidence in his serving. So what did he do? He prayed for it. Pray for divine help. You can do that if you're ever tempted to give up, to drop out because of your own failures or because of other people's scorn of you. Don't drop out. Don't do that. Keep on while praying that the Lord will cause the sense of shame or reproach to go away. And he ends verse 39 with some good 2020 theological vision, we could call it. 
he just kind of throws it out there again, because your ordinances are good. In other words, he keeps coming back to that. That's just a regular reference point throughout Psalm 119. It's a regular reference point for his life, no matter what else happens. I still know this. This fact doesn't change. Your law's good. Your ordinances are good. Your word's good. And that fact did bring a level of stability into his life. He may fail, but he knew God's word never does. And that leads to this point, the last one, number seven. He prayed for this. Totally depend on the Lord for this one. Number seven, for spiritual encouragement. Spiritual encouragement. Now, the first part of verse 40 kind of breaks the rhythm. You've, you've had all these, you know, the verses starting with the verb, and here it starts with a statement. Behold, it's not a prayer like the others. Behold, I long for your precepts. The prayer comes in the second half. <laughs> Behold, I long for your precepts. Now, he's just said that the word of God is good. It's only made sense that he would long for it. This is the normal posture of God's people. We love the truth. Our radio program that's on Sunday mornings. I don't, some of you, I don't know if you know our church has one. Every Sunday morning about 8.02 from 8 to 8.30 on Christian radio here. Danny Gumprick's voice comes on with a little song in the background about our radio program called Loving the Truth. We called it that because we're teaching the truth and God's people love the truth. That's just what we do. Or we long for it, as the psalmist says, longing for the truth. And it is that strong, this strong affirmation of his longing after truth that sets the stage then for, excuse me, his last request in this stanza. The end of verse 40. Revive me through your righteousness. The psalmist wanted to be revived. What that means is he wanted to be spiritually refreshed. He wanted to be spiritually encouraged. He needed it. Why? So that he was ready to meet whatever troubles in life would come. When you're not spiritually encouraged, it's harder to face the difficulties of life, the potholes and the speed bumps. But the only way that was going to happen is if the Lord would help him. So he prayed for it. And the Lord would do this not based on any merit on the part of the psalmist, the one praying. It's not that I deserve it, Lord. You know, I'm, I'm not spiritually encouraged right now, so stir that passion up because I, I'm really one of your best, Lord. I deserve that from you, you know. No. He's pleading for this not based upon anything about him. He says, revive me through your righteousness. He pled for this based upon God's own righteousness. So let me summarize this. Here's what the psalmist knew about himself. See if you identify with any of this. He knew this. He knew he couldn't stay on the right way for all of his life in his own strength. He knew he couldn't be wisely discerning on his own. He knew he couldn't consistently conform to a life of integrity in his own strength. He knew his priorities would not be kept straight if it was just up to him. He knew he couldn't properly worship and honor God on his own. He knew he couldn't deal with disgrace and ridicule in his own strength. And he knew he could not muster up spiritual vitality and encouragement on his own. So why did the Lord let him write part of the Bible? Listen, he's just being honest. 
God inspired him to write this. To write for us that he had to pray that God would cause all these things to happen in his life. And I submit to you that that is good praying. Because it's humble praying and it's honest praying. Yes, we have responsibilities in every one of these. We have effort that we must put forth and so forth. But ultimately, we're totally dependent on the Lord to truly bring all these things to pass. And that is a good place to be, to realize that you are totally dependent on God. I trust you'll go back over these verses in your own prayer time and personalize them. It's not a magic incantation. It's just good praying. Father, we thank you for this window into the soul of this psalmist so long ago. We resonate with most, if not all, of this. So, Lord, we turn to you. As Jehoshaphat prayed, where else can we go? We have nowhere else to go but you. So, Lord, we pray these things for ourselves that we may honor you with our lives. I pray for anyone here that's never really come to a place in their life where they can say for certain that they, they are a follower of Christ, that they are saved from their sin, that they've never come to a place where they've recognized that they're selfish and sinful and they can never do enough to offset it, enough good. They can never earn your, your favor, God, your acceptance, that it's hopeless. Lord, if they've never come to that place, to cry out to you, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven of my sin. I, I need a Savior. I need to follow Christ as my Lord. Lord, I pray you would open their hearts to trust in Him alone for that. In our Savior's name, amen.